You're listening to the Alex Wolf Podcast. Interesting conversations about innovation, economics, culture, and history for the independent thinkers and curious minds. I'm your host, Alex Wolf. All right, so hello. Hi. Uh, crazy week. People were DMing me asking me about my thoughts and I'm sorry guys I always just have to refer to my videos um on my YouTube channel that I've made about how social current social media design has been designed to create what you are seeing in the news by the way rest in peace MF Doom we lost a real one this week um Love me some MF Doom. So, yeah, if you have, if you're curious about my thoughts about this week and just the state of politics and the polarization, um, I definitely su- uh, recommend and suggest that you check out my older videos on YouTube. And I really thought I was doing something. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to make these videos and show the world. And it's like, eh, you know, it. the world didn't know, but my audience knew and these were things that were really keeping me up at night in 2016, 17, 18. I didn't start to become vocal about it until I sold my company and um, really just dedicated 100% of my time to it. But um, yeah, it's it's not a joke. Very interesting stuff. I, I like to take the position of the observer. I don't, um, you know, it's important to know how to reserve energy in times like this. So anyway, with that being said, Um, I want to talk about today how, and this is relevant to sort of the state of the world, um, very much so, and it's how behavioral changes happen from environments and not rules. Ooh. The important thing also I want you to take away from this episode is that if you're trying to change a person's behavior, the best thing to do is not to try to enforce it with rules but learning how implying what behavior is expected through their environment is actually how you get better results, right? The problem is right now, too many people are trying to enforce these changes and all these big you know, shifts in our behavior, particularly on social media through rules and through good ideas that sound really nice and, and theoretical, but good ideas can't stand in the face of reality. And reality is not what we think, it is where we are. And these environments don't only suggest that we behave poorly, these uh, environments of social media, and we'll be talking about that too, how environments are not just your physical space, but your digital space. These environments not only suggest that we behave poorly, but they're economically designed so that they bring out the worst of us. This is something to apply in tech philosophy because I am often asked to speak on panels or consult for companies and everyone is really asking me questions like how do we spend less time online Um, you know how can we use social media in a healthy way how can we you know prevent bullying online and people never like my answers because my answers are always throw everything we have right now in the trash um, (laughs) because 
I feel like the typical social media guru or whatever, the mental health social media expert person, which I do not consider myself to be, but I'm often requested to chime in in these types of conversations is, um, you know, well, we need to just be more um, positive on social media. We need to call out bullying when we see it. We need to stop using so much screen time. And it's a lot of rules. It's a lot of shoulds. We should, you know, spend less time on the phone, put it away at night. We should, we should. And I agree. (laughs) But let me tell you something. I'm not a should girl. Okay, I, I, I'm from Brooklyn. Like, I, I built my first business at a young age. I've been through some things. And I know that the world doesn't work in shoulds. I think there's a lot of shit that should be the way um, it should be. But it ain't. So what do we do now? And so I like to chime in when that reality has been faced. And I think we're facing those realities more every day. And so part of that is being realistic about how your little shoulds and your little rules and your little, um, you know, trying to be helpful features aren't doing it. That this is not about trying to change human nature. Good luck with that. I'll be over here trying to build harmonious environments for not even just human nature, my damn self. How about that, right? It's a great place to start, uh, giving you a lot of reason, hence why I'm so passionate about homemaking. It's the first environment, right? Boom. You wake up, you go to sleep in the home. People, the people who are asking me, oh, Alex, how do we make social media more safe? Half of those people... I would bet don't like being home. They don't like their home environments. And those are assumptions I'm making from having experience working in the tech world, working with the corporate world, and just seeing how much of these people hate their jobs. (laughs) They don't like what they're doing. They're not particularly happy. I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying from my experience. And it's not shade. I think that it is what it is. I can see why right now, especially, it would be really draining and taxing. And so because I'm sensitive to this and because I'm not just trying to give you a squeaky clean rules book on, you know, better social media practices, it has, um, you know, I have more of a ruffled feathers type of response in, in the tech world, whatever, who cares, right? I mean, Elon Musk and Bezos get to be a little raunchy and crazy, so why not me? Boom. All right, so how can you benefit from understanding how behavioral changes happen from environments and not rules. What is this going to really mean for your life? Well, first of all, you'll get better results in changing your behaviors. I'm sure you might have a behavior right now that you're not particularly happy about, um, or maybe you want to inspire different behaviors in your kids or your employees or your coworkers. And so it's very useful information because uh, behaviors shape our lives. <laughs> your your life is made up of what behavior you are acting out when you wake up and when you go to sleep and as you are sleeping, right? Behaviors, in my opinion, everything. It has so much to deal with um, anthropo- uh, anthropological, you know, influences and culture. It has so much to deal with just human beings and civilization. The whole thing is behavior going off in all different directions. So that's the main benefit. 
And so I think the best way I like to start this type of conversation is talking about this myth of tech being neutral. I really try to put on a polite face when I'm on the panel and then the one guy or girl's like, oh, you know, well, it's not, it's, what do they say? It's not um the tech that's bad. Tech is not bad. It's us. We're the ones. And I'm sorry, I just, I'm going off. I have to be rude today. It is what it is. So <laughs> I've sat through enough of these and, um, you know, oh, well, if, if we just, you know, if, if we were more um, responsible or tapped into our higher selves or whatever the hell, then the tech wouldn't be a problem. Okay, let me stop you right there. I understand the implication. I understand what is being suggested in the sentence, tech is not bad, it's people who are bad. I, I get it, right? It's like, oh, well, the computer's just sitting there. How can it be evil? Well, what's really important to understand in tech philosophy is that every technology implies what it's supposed to be used for. Through You can look at it, you can touch it, you can actually use it, and just through the user experience, whether it be opening Photoshop or picking up a hammer, through the user experience, it will be communicating to you via UX UI what it's supposed to do. So the reason why that's important is because we tend to think the human being has 100% control in how a technology is shaped or we think that we are you know, already shaped and our shape cannot be changed from technology. And when I say shape, I mean the shape of our behavior. That's a better way of saying it. We think you know, our, my behavior is my behavior and this technology cannot interfere with my behavior. How is that true? <laughs> How is that true? Let's just, I know that's a nice thought. I know that's what we want to think, but in your experience over the past five to 10 years with social media, have you not seen your behavior changed for the better or worse? Have you not seen how technology can influence your behavior? Now, I'm not saying it's all for the bad. I I'm not saying social media is bad. I'm not, please, you have to bear with me with these nuances because once we start making everything black and white, then we can throw this conversation out the door. What I'm saying is the fact that some of our grandmas, depending on how far you go back, some of our homemakers in our family were washing clothes without washers and dryers. Now, when washers and dryers came, did that change their behavior? Did that change the behavior of watch, washing the clothes and how they dealt with the clothes? Did it change the structure of their day, probably? Did it change the, the, the anatomy of their schedules? Okay, that's one. That's one invention in the spectrum of dozens, if not hundreds, that got implemented during the Industrial Revolution and just over the course of human history. So I think it's just so unfortunate to miss out on this dimension of relationship we have to technology to think like, oh, yeah, I'm just a human being and I have complete control over... Um, technology. If that was the case, we wouldn't be having conversations about gun laws. If that was the case, we wouldn't be having conversations about cars and, and seatbelts and things like that. Please. 
okay? So I can't be on no panel. Don't be inviting me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just saying, like, I'm going to roll my eyes like I usually do when someone's like, it's not us, you know, or it, it, sorry, it's not the tech. It's, it's both. I tweeted once that people think my, uh, my work is about how we shape technology or we create technology. My work is really about how technology shapes us. It shapes our behavior. Okay, we're going to get into that a little bit more deeper so you can feel it. <laughs> but tech is not neutral. Okay? Humans are not neutral either. I'm not saying it's all the tech. Because people are like, oh, well, how people need to take personal responsibility, Alex. I agree. <laughs> I agree. And that is part of why I think the, the first step of that personal responsibility is figuring out why the hell you're inventing what you're inventing to begin with. Before you want to start talking about how, you know, it, it can't um, affect our behavior. It always will. Anything. So now I want to explore some McLuhan the uh, theory. McLuhan, I dedicated my documentary to him. He was a very misunderstood academic. I've talked about him before. He coined the term, the medium is the message. And what he was implying in that sentence was that people think, the best example is television, which he focused on a lot and was super creeped out about because this was when the major adoption of, of television was happening in American culture. So people think, when, when television was taking over, everyone thought what the shows were about, that the shows themselves were um, changing, you know, thoughts and beliefs and stuff like that. And that was valid and threatening for a lot of people. But what McLuhan was trying to point out was not just the content of the television, but the invention of the television itself, the makeup of this invention itself is a medium, meaning it is a, it is a type of technology that is communicating. Not because there's a voice on the television or a talking head on the television, but the invention itself is saying something, okay? This is such a profound perspective when we're talking about tech philosophy, <clears throat> when we're talking about today's world, when we're talking about social media, because right now everyone's focused on the fact that we're on social media, it's the people on social media, and we're not focused on, well, a lot of the way these platforms are designed inherently bring out these behaviors we see. I am not taking personal responsibility away from the equation. All I'm doing is I'm adding in, I'm not taking nothing out of the pot, I'm adding in the fact that things like like buttons and public follower counts and public comments or screenshots or fading, uh, disappearing messages, whether you like them or not, they stimulate certain behaviors, okay? So McLuhan was, 
I mean, it's. I told. I've said this before. It's painful to watch his interviews because no one understands what the hell he's talking about. And he had said something, you know, where he was like, he said something like, readers tend to have more. Li- uh, li- readers are more literate than people who watch TV, or people who read books more are more literate than people who watch TV. Um, and the audience clapped, and he was like. I'm not making a value judgment or a value statement. I'm just saying what it is. But because people clapped, what that was an expression of was people believing that readers are better, some way superior than people who watch TV. And that was not his point. He, he wanted people to take the value judgment out of whether something was better or um, you know, worse. He just wanted to see you how see how different. He wanted you to see how different they were, and how differently they impacted your behavior. So I tried to do the same thing in attention in attention for sale because my main thing I'm trying to say is that little text on a page that is just sitting there. You know, half of America were falling asleep in front of books because. Not because we don't like to read and not because we're lazy, but because we are so used to more stimulation on the eyes and the brain that those little words cannot compete. Okay, so obviously this is a threat for those little words. Do we need to know some of those little words? Would it be helpful to be able to live in a society where most people have the retention and attention span to sit and read and and really absorb that information? Can you tell we are a society that is the result of a population that can't really that, that that can't really finish those words because their senses have been exploited to that point. Y- y- I mean, look around, right? So that is a very very important message. And the other example I give about technology never being neutral is, and now we're gonna kind of zoom out because. This episode is about how environments change behavior more than rules. And I want you to close your eyes right now if you can and think about being in like a spa. Nice zen spa. Beautiful aroma and 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 calm, maybe water pouring, right? That environment is going to imply what type of behavior, right? Is it implying you should start drumming and do a, a rock star concert? No, it's really, your body will literally start to assimilate to its environment. Um, now you can close your eyes and pretend you're at a concert. That's a fun one today, right? And people are going crazy and oh my God, look, and right? And that environment, the loud music, the crashing sounds, the people, the flirting, the people doing drugs and everything all this, is that the environment is that environment implying the same thing you're going to feel in the zen environment no now of course you can't do something stupid like kill someone at a concert and be like well it wasn't me it was the environment no personal responsibility is a part of the factor i'm going to keep continuing that but the point is that environments influence your mood and your behavior now we're going to do that same exercise and go to the hood. This is what I always say. People want to say, oh, well, tech is neutral. 
and you know inventions and you know it's it's not it's not them it's us when you go to the hood you'll see all types of it, it's not necessarily technology but systems in place that are a hundred percent i mean the freaking layout of some of these neighborhoods are designed on a mathematical scale to make sure a certain quota of people go here, a certain amount of quota of people go there, because you can design behavior. <laughs> you can design it. It won't be 100% all the time. You're going to get the rare kid, the Jay-Zs, who, who got out, right? And that's why his story is uh, everybody loves it. Why? Because, oh, shit, the odds so, and then you think about kids who grow up in wealthier communities that have more general support and stability and understand that you can take two kids, the same kid, and depending on what environment you put them in, they're going to act out from that environment um, in response to. The last example I'll give is with your hair. <laughs> and if my curly people are listening, you already know what type of time we're on. Because some people think, oh, you know, I'm done doing my hair, so I'm just going to go about my day. But your hair, and especially if you have curly hair or um, high porosity hair, <laughs> it is 100% reacting to the environment. You may have put it, thrown it up and said, oh, I'm done. I'm not going to pay attention to you all day. But your hair is literally responding to the humidity, to the heat, to the coldness, to the dryness. And you can take it a step further. Your skin is doing that. Your eyes are doing that. Your ears are doing that. Your, your eardrums, right? They're picking up the sound vibrations of my voice right now. Why am I saying all this? Because I'm talking about stimuli and environments. And so the last environment I want you to pay attention to is the one you're in right now, right? Maybe you're at home, maybe you're driving, maybe you're at the gym, whatever. But everything in that room is doing something to you. <laughs> it may be subtle, it may be indirect, it may be, you know, again, happening on a peripheral level, but it's happening. And your eyes are either blurring it out or, um, you know, you're, you're, your uh, pores are either opening or closing, depending on the temperature. Like, you're a freaky neaky being. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're a freaky neaky creature. You are constantly having involuntary responses to the stimuli in your environment. Whether even if in you, even if you're in a super room controlled, temperature controlled room, your hair is doing stuff. Everything's doing stuff. Even for women, shit's happening on a monthly cycle. It's it's crazy. Like there's all these cycles happening with our body and the environment and blah blah blah. So maybe. This perspective will shed light on the fact that someone like me is insulted by TV screens on the back of airplane seats, <laughs> where the environment of an airplane is already not the most pleasant place to be in it of itself. But this screen, and I have a video about the anatomy of this screen and how the screen is such a revolutionary invention because it's basically filtering, you know, one of the most important parts of existence, which is light. 
it filters light to show certain colors at certain frames and speeds to show you a picture. And it's almost like this, when the screen is off, it's black, right? It's like a black hole of, of our desired consciousness. It's like an extension of our reality because you have your peripheral, your reality of what you see right now. And then when you turn on that black screen, you get to kind of pick and choose your reality. You can go to Game of Thrones, you can go to Sex in the City, you can go to, you know, whatever, Sopranos. And you can get really emotionally developed um, and invested <laughs> in some of these realities. You can go to Instagram, <laughs> get your feelings hurt, <laughs> right? So when we talk about Zen, when we talk about tech, when we talk about environments and, and behavior, a lot of it is happening because of where you are. If you talk to people who have struggled with addiction, some of the first things they start to teach in recovery um, is to make sure you're, you're in environments that are not going to trigger certain habits that will get you in a bad place. This happens for working out. You know, some people have little things that they literally design behaviorally so that they create habits off of stimu stimuli in their environment, right? <clears throat> environment is everything. So I'm saying all that to say that this myth of technology being neutral is a myth and that every environment is implying some type of behavior out of you. Sometimes the behavior will be very obvious and easy to do. Sometimes the behavior will be hard to do or, or something that you don't, a behavior you don't want to do, but because you're in the behavior, it's making it harder not to. That's what I mean to say. And every environment has a medium. And so what McLuhan was trying to say was that every time you add a different medium or anything into your environment, you are in a different environment. It, it, for example, say you are in a living room with not, without a TV and that living room on his like reader is purple, right? Without the TV, it's purple. Once you put that TV in, then on his reader, it's gonna turn like green, right? And when I say his reader, I mean like theoretically, the way he's trying to explain this on a theoretical level is that you're now in a different environment. It's not the purple room with a green TV in it. It's just the whole room now has changed color because you've added this TV. So of course the way, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing some of this homemaking stuff I'm into is making sense because, duh, I'm constantly thinking about, okay, my environment. Like, how is this, and you know, how is this color? How is this, you know, feng shui? Is, there's, this, there's ancient arts about this stuff. It's not new, right? People have always been sensitive to the fact that certain architecture and certain sizes, certain, you know, parts of the, of the globe that, your window is facing, right? Facing the east or facing the west. These are things that have been thought about in how they create ambiance, how they um, influence your mood, influence your energy. If you're in a super cluttered environment, everyone knows it's gonna make you feel more disorganized. If you, you know, are in an environment that's neat and orderly, most likely you'll feel more neat and orderly. So it's not just about being prissy or you know meticulous for no reason but these things 
your environment has a lot to do with your well-being. I think we think I think we know how obvious that is in certain regards, but when it comes to tech, we're like, we're not even thinking about it. We think we keep saying that um, you know it's not the tech, it's us. We must be responsible, and the tech has no influence. Okay, there's a 65-inch television in your house, and you don't think it's doing anything. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, I wanted to explain the McLuhan influence and, and perspective. So his, again, the main thing is new environments mean new behaviors, which means new behaviors give you a new life, a new generation, let's say. Because it's not just you. These innovations tend to shape the generation, right? Because the whole point of the innovation is that it is adopted by most of society. That's the difference between an invention and an innovation. Inventions are just things people invent, and it does not become an innovation until the whole world takes on to it. So when we do have innovative times, which millennials have had one of the biggest ones happen at a very fragile life stage, which is adolescence, um, it's definitely going to change our behavior. And most of our social media is really skeletal, poorly thought out, designed by adolescents. And I mean, look, this, I always say, just look around. You can see that immature internet behaviors. So I say all this to say that we have a moralist dilemma, okay? What I mean is that statements like, we should all just, we should all just, you know, put our phones away. We should all just take more time to be with our families. We should all just blah, blah, blah. We won't, okay? Shoulds are cute, okay? Put that on a t-shirt. The statements that are like, if only everyone would just, if only everyone one day will see, if only all of us just got together and saw, we never will. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is my realist point of view. This is my Zen point of view. It is, that's my point of view. Other people might think differently. I don't. And it doesn't, I don't say that because I think we're, you know, um, uh, I haven't given hope on humanity. It's not one of those things where I'm like, oh, we won't because we're just so dumb and we're, no, I don't think that at all. What I think is that those statements are really nice hot air. I think that's what they are. They're what we say to feel better. And I'm a doer. So things that make, words that make people feel better is not really my thing. For some people, it is. Some people have love languages that are words. Not me. <laughs> and I love it. I think I, I love that we have diversity. I love that we have people who can use words and stuff like that and those shoulds and if we could all just, because I, I do think they have a place. But in, when it comes to designing better technology, absolutely not. All you see is that. <sighs> 
wouldn't it be nice if we just all spent 30 minutes on the boat and we went out and we can't afford, okay? We cannot afford that type of unsophisticated application. It is not a solution to this issue. We will change behaviors when we change the environments. And environments are not just our rooms and our house. They are the screen. We act out behaviors based on what features are on these apps. I, I was looking at my old notes to have for, for this episode. It was like, you know, notes from like 2017. And one of the things said, do you know that the app you use is turning you into an asshole? And it's my crude way of just saying like, there's things that will bring out the ugly in you in these apps. We all know that. We all know that. And so the question is less about how to try to change our human nature and more how to design features that are more complementary to our uh, human nature. And if you're new here and you're curious about what those features are, I have a whole presentation on them that I will link because it takes an hour to explain them because they're nuanced. But you know, they've been really helpful. And I've, I've actually had conversations with um, tech startups who have been implementing this advice. So at the end of the day, every technology, it doesn't matter how good the intentions are in building it, how um, good the intentions are with certain inventions, they will always have unintended consequences. It's almost the more good intentions you have, the worse reality it will produce. <laughs> and so that is something we have to incorporate when we invent. It is something, you know, again, this element not to try to predict every consequence, because you can't, but to embrace and, and run an ethical analysis that meets the touch points of how does this fit in with human nature. So um, what I like to say is experiences teach louder than words, right? Um, and what that means is that you preaching, you're any moralist who is saying, who has motivation or who has those, if only we could, and, you know, if we all just... Those, those are words. Experiences will teach louder than those. And the moralist dilemma is they don't know that. They really, 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 really think <laughs> that saying nice things is going to make technology better. So I wanted to read a quote from Alan Watts, of course. Surprise, surprise. Wisdom of insecurity. Um, Jesus, I hope this is the, I hope I, I have like 10 pages folded in here. Um, oh, here we go. He says, uh, he talks about morality is the living, is the art of living together, which I love. I'm not against morals. Listen to my last episode. I talk a lot about morals and how important they are for har harmony. Uh, he says, but the moralist has 
in practice become much more than a technical consultant. He has become a scold. That means someone who's scolding you. For people do not take his advice. They ask how it is best to act under such and such circumstances. He tells them and, seem, and they seem to agree that he is right. But then they go away and do something different. But then they go away and seem to do something different. I had to repeat that. For they find his advice too difficult or, or have a strong desire to do the opposite. This happens so regularly that the moralist loses his temper and begins to call them bad names. When, he, when this has no effect, he resorts to physical violence, implementing his advice with policemen, punishments, and prisons. Hmm, interesting. I mean, what I take away from this is that the danger of the moralist dilemma is that people know the moralist is right, right? But his ideas being yelled out on a podium are not enough. They're, the people's human nature will still lead them to do what they know they shouldn't. Um, and that's just because we're humans and we, we like to learn the hard way sometimes. And what that does is it causes a harmful infestation of hypocrisy in the community because when everyone is so adamant about publicly agreeing about what is right and what sounds good, but they still act out these harmful behaviors in private, that's where you really get the threat because I think obviously at I'm, I'm trying to be very clear that as humans, we're always going to like try to learn the hard way. We're never going to be perfect, right? I think there's that learning the hard way is okay in a healthy, like human moderation. But what happens is too much of it creates a society where everyone is using these loud proclamations of good ideas to ignore the reality of these hidden parasitic behaviors that are eating up whatever integrity your community has, right? If everyone knows, okay, it's bad to do X, Y, Z, and we're and we're using saying it so much to as a way to kind of make it seem like we're all doing it, it actually does more harm because it means that we're kind of burdening it. We're shoveling more dirt on top of something that we should be bringing to the light, and um. This is why I was very intentional about opening my documentary saying I'm addicted to my phone. I, I go to sleep with my phone because I wanted right away people to know that this is not some other, you know, social media doc where we're going to leave you with like some motivational, theoretical ideas. I was trying to say I was trying to show the reality of the environment um, that we have built for ourselves. And so. The only way to really change or the only way to yeah change these parasitic behaviors in a way that it doesn't meet the threshold past that healthy, moderate human error. Right. When um, is, is to create environments with healthy socioeconomic incentives that inherently uphold behaviors that are about creating sustainability. And my big issue is I don't have a problem with ads. I don't have a problem with capitalism. I don't have a problem with any of that stuff. What I have a problem with is that, especially as a creator, the socioeconomic incentives on most of our social media 
is not about inherently upholding behaviors that create sustainability. They are about draining us. They are about taking everything out. These business models are about exploitation of the eyes, of the senses, of, of your peace of mind. And so that's where I have the issue because I think that obviously I, th I love to be on social media. I love to socialize. I love to have that digital connection with you guys and everything. But I think that we could be doing so much of a smarter job creating healthier socioeconomic incentives, which means that uh, healthier socio, meaning social incentives, healthier ways to have conversations online and economic, healthier ways to feel uh, responsible to uphold a certain reputation. When we're talking about economics, we're talking about the distribution of resources, we're talking about People relying on people. And the only way people can rely on people is through trust. And so it's just difficult to do that when the number one goal as a, a social media user is to just uh, you put your eyeballs on the screen all forever. <laughs> um, so the moralist dilemma is the experiential focus person's advantage. And you see this very clearly with the companies that focus on making their customers and users have a better experience. And the best way to feel this and understand this is in my video with um, uh, Snapchat and Facebook. And I kind of compare how when Snapchat was more popular and more and more millennials were using it, it was not an icky time in the sense of the moving away from the public likes and the public followers really was giving us a different environment, which was making us act out different internet behaviors and new internet behaviors that were so successful that Instagram had to integrate those uh, new internet behaviors like stories in order to stay afloat. <laughs> Instagram does not invent, Facebook does not invent new internet behaviors. They integrate ones that already work from innovative companies who create them. So that's just so, so, so important to understand because I don't think people know that the internet does not have to feel this way. It doesn't have to feel this way. It doesn't have to drain you. It doesn't have to be like this. I enjoy Twitter. I enjoy Instagram in the sense that, you know, I don't love it, but I, I can enjoy, you know, what it has to offer. But I also see them as so limited to what is possible. I see them as so just, it's like, why are we still using features that are so, um, that were made during stationary internet times, meaning made before mobile internet, before we started taking the internet around with us? Because we can make better social media when we make features that imply that we are mobile that imply that we are always online. It's only awkward when you get a text and you wanna post something on Instagram, but you can't because you know the person who sent you that text 
is waiting on you and so now you're going to look like you're ignoring them. All of these awkward opportunities or all of these awkward, um, I guess, things that happen are because we are using stationary internet features in um, a mobile internet environment. <laughs> if that doesn't make any sense, watch my video. I have a video on this as well. You might as well watch all those videos <laughs> because this will be more clear. Um, but yeah, when we're talking about how technology changes our environments, think about how your house turned from purple to green when you invited that computer in, right? And how it was, the internet was this experience you had in a very designated place. It almost, it also um, immobilized other telecommunications in your home in order to use it. So this is during dial-up days where you had to use the phone line to connect to the internet. It was a very, uh, like, it was a very, like, kind of deserted little aisle in the home, right? It was, the, the adults had no fucking clue what we were doing on there. My dad did because he, you know, was the computer geek, but I can tell most of my, my um, friends, their parents just didn't really understand. They knew it had something to do with school, um, but it didn't really much. We, we, <laughs> It's crazy on a macro scale. Millennials, generally speaking, um, we kind of conned our parents into thinking that the computer was really a school tool. And we were hiding how much we were using it to just entertain ourselves. Um, and it's crazy because if, because they, invested so heavily in computers for children in a way that creeps me the fuck out today because I'm like you don't know what you were giving us all you knew was that you thought it was going to make us smarter because you know computers at the time just had this association of smartness now they literally are associated with like being dumb right <laughs> but like you know having too much computer time or whatever spending too much time on your phone that's what we call it but we all know they're computers so um just to think about, there's a really good book. I'm going to add it to my Amazon bookstore. It's called The Dumbest Generation. And it's like why millennials are like basically doomed to fail. It's, I'm going to warn you right now, it's dark. <laughs> and what's so funny about it is that I remember seeing it in Barnes & Noble when I was like 20 or something or like 19 and I was so offended. I was like, they are such haters. It's just that typical early adulthood arrogance and like with a sprinkle of extra millennial entitlement. I was just like, someone is so bitter that they really wrote a book about how dumb millennials are. Like, and here I am like running my internet company. I'm thinking I'm like hot shit. Like, I'm like, you know, we're smarter than you guys, you know, that typical bullshit arrogance that you have that I just feel so bad. <laughs> you ever feel bad for how arrogant you were when you were in your early 20s and then like you see the early 20 girls now and guys now and you're just like, oh, sweetheart. But anyway, at first, yeah, I saw the book and I just like, like put it down right away and God knows what I bought that day, but it wasn't that. And then <laughs> as I was exploring, doing research for 
one of my presentations, I was uh, researching about the 1996 Act. I think it was the Telecommunications Act where they made it, um, they enforced a law where each public school needed a computer in it. I don't know if you remember, but I know in New York for sure, we you had to have at least one computer. And like, my experience was like, no one really ever used it. It was like used once in a while, but just, I mean, doesn't that say something right there that like, we were so paranoid as a nation of being ahead that we had, you know, it, we invested in this technology and we were like, you know, just put one in there. Just everyone must legally have a computer in the room. And um, that type of uh, attitude towards kids and computers really, I just, it just really makes me shake my head today because I'm just like, I'm sorry, it's just so funny to me. I'm like, it was an entertainment box. And if you read the if you read the um the book, it talks about just these horrifying statistics of how our brains weren't really developed to read because we were skimming websites and that, you know, unfortunately so many of the adults raising us didn't know that we weren't actually reading half of them didn't even know what the hell we were doing we were just like on AOL and just just saying you were on the computer made you sound smart to a lot of parents um and the question and, and again this brings in that McLuhan factor of it's not even about what's on there it's the fact that this invention is in here and we haven't really questioned what it's going to bring and I love my computers. I am not saying we made the wrong decision <laughs> or any of that. I needed my computers. I grew up as an only child, and it was definitely my source of just entertainment and socializing and all that. But, man, when I tell you it has shaped us, those stationary experiences, and we move so quickly from that stationary to the mobile that we just don't understand Again, the room turned from it went from purple to green when the when the when the computer came in. But once we got that mobile phone, honey, the whole world went a whole nother color. I don't know, pick a color, red, <laughs> red, because <laughs> it's a whole nother color now. I must say, I must say. Anyway, that's what I wanted to say for this episode. Um, Design environments and mediums that inherently stimulate harmonious behaviors. If you need tangible examples of that, seriously check out the, the Snapchat video I have on my YouTube channel. Um, it will give you specific examples of how things like disappearing messages and notifying when someone has taken a screenshot will change the way you act on a platform. Or just the fact that you don't have likes, how that might change how you act on a platform or what you post. Um, the other thing I'll say, the other example I like to give is when we're talking about social media and everyone's giving their, their two cents about how we should just get offline or spend less screen time, blah, blah, blah. I talk about the innovation of the car and how we were so excited as a nation to have cheap enough cars to reproduce on a mass scale. We didn't have roads. <laughs> <laughs> we, 
We didn't have roads. We, I mean, we had, yeah, we had like horse roads, right? But we didn't have no car roads and we didn't have no seat belts. We didn't have traffic lights, okay? We had that car first. We didn't have no highways. Definitely didn't have any highways. So as cars became more and more advanced, boom, now you're starting to get the traffic light. Now you're starting to get the seatbelt, which wasn't invented until 60 years after, mind you. You know how many people had to die, unfortunately, because we were so gung-ho about this car. So the moral of that example is that to tell someone to get off their social media now when it is so socially, politically, and economically ingrained into our lives is like telling someone that we shouldn't drive cars. You know, when when those highways were being built, it's like telling people, you know, rip the highways apart. (laughs) We won't need them. Well, cars kill people, so, you know, rip those highways apart. You know, it's gotten to be too crazy. You invented an environment for this car. The earth doesn't look like this. The earth didn't come with highways and bridges and stuff. Y'all wanted to do that. So remember what is underneath everything. And remember that underneath this world of your phone is the environment. And even within the phone, there's environments you create. Clubhouse is a great example right now. People are like loving the audio and they're loving, it's technology with presence, which is a feature that I talked about in that presentation. You are present in the room because what makes you feel good to be alive? Being present with other human beings. And that's a feature we can have with the internet, which is brilliant and amazing because presence is such an intimate, important part of connecting to humans. That's why text messages feel the way they feel. Because, (laughs) okay, here's a a tangible example and then I'm going to go. A tangible example of how you create human-friendly technology and human-friendly environments, right, is with text messaging, Text messaging came from people wanting to send little text messages <laughs> instead of phone calls. And it also was similar to IMing, right? Remember on AOL or AIM, you would chat. And remember, there was a little feature that would say, so and so is typing, you know, like, you know, beautiful girl 499 or whatever is typing. And the whole point, point of instant message was is it was supposed to be a quick back and forth. You send, I send. You send, I send. And then we end the conversation. You log off. Woo! A concept, honey. None of these apps, all these apps want to take my facial fucking uh, recognition. They, they want to send it to China. Nobody's giving me option to log off the app. Not not in that uh, aim way, right? People want to deactivate my account, make it all dramatic. Are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> so, okay, boom. Aim was based off the tit-tat, tit-tat, right? Boom, log off. Okay, oh, my God, I talked to so-and-so on aim. Yeah, uh-huh. He's going to say hi to school, blah, blah, Boom. Texting was... I'm downstairs, love you. Texts were also expensive, especially as a teenager. Like your parents were like, oh my God, you know, I told you, you only have, we should look at what those plans look like. Cause I think there were like 50 texts a month or some crazy shit. And then, <laughs> and then, um, but what, as, as text evolved, what started happening is um, they got, the text got cheaper 
And so people started sending texts more often. And so people just started using text to, to talk. But the issue with text is that the two parties don't have to be present in order to have a conversation. So, so many millennials grew up thinking they were like having conversations. And again, if, if those conversations were super present, then you probably felt connected to that person. But the second those gaps start to get wider <laughs> between the text, you will go fucking crazy. If you're a girl, if you're a guy, it doesn't matter because the communication was never supposed to be designed that way. And, and keep in mind, that there's no inflection, there's no tone of the voice, all of that being lost. I've written about this, you know, a couple of times now, but it's a great example of how this environment of communication is not human friendly. It's great for secondary, third way of communicating, but if you're trying to get to know someone, good luck. Um, and yeah, so I go into that in more detail. I'm gonna let you go. Hopefully this was... I don't know, helps you think about ways that you can change your environment, um, you know, for your kids, for yourself, everything. Just remember, it's everything. Wherever you are taking information in, whether it be through your eyes, your skin, your ears, your mouth, right, whatever your food you're eating, your smell, it's fucking with you, <laughs> It's either like making you feel better or it's like fucking with you and you don't know because you're not sensitive enough. And when you become sensitive enough, you start realizing, oh, that pile of clothes on the floor is, is subtly impacting like the overall ambiance of this room. Or the lighting is, you know, messing up this, the vibe in here. And so this is what I love about feminine power because I feel like the art the wisdom of our mothers and grandmothers they knew how to create a vibe okay sis guys think they're cute oh look look I put it they they think they're creating vibes and sometimes they do I'm not gonna rattle around too much but the point is like half of these in my opinion half of these men don't even know what type of environments and how much they are, that is easing them and for our children too I, I don't have kids yet but you know for kids too it's like you're safe. You're loved. Can you feel it? Can you feel it in the lighting? Because I was in the store and I made sure I picked out, you know what I mean? Like we're so intentional and it's just such a shame. It's looked down upon. I'm just like, ugh, you know, whatever, whatever. It's up to y'all. Thank you for tuning in. Please send me a message on Instagram, um, Twitter, your toxic social media place of choice. <laughs> And yeah, I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Alex Wolf podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And if you aren't already, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For more resources on innovation, economics, and culture, visit alexwolf.co slash newsletter and sign up for my email list. Thanks.